I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. Joining me today on this episode of the podcast is designer Lucy Carine, who's dialing in from her home in Paris. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Lucy. It's great to be chatting. Pleasure. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I thought I might start our conversation today uh, by asking you about your childhood and your education and early work experiences uh, with Matthew Hilton and Pearson Lloyd and how each of those may have influenced how you work now um, in your own studio. I came into the design industry through a love of art. Um, I, I grew up in West Yorkshire in, in the north of England. Um, and this was the birthplace of um, artists like Barbara Hepworth and Henry Moore and, and David Hockney. There was you know, quite a good portfolio of really big international artists um, in the region. And, and their legacy was quite prominent across the county. And my family appreciated the arts in, in, a, in a quiet way. You know, my aunt, she painted and my gran opened a little gallery on the coast after she retired. And, um, you know, my dad went to pottery classes on the evening when we were kids. And, you know, so we, we weren't, you know, connected to the industry or we didn't know anyone famous, but, but I grew up around a kind of prosaic appreciation of creativity. And um, at the age of three, I'd, I'd already decided that I was going to go to art college and become an artist. Um, <clears throat> and so I went to Leeds College of Art um, and it was there that my tutors, they, after the first term of being there, they took one look at my drawings and all proclaimed with unanimous certainty that I would be a, a three-dimensional designer. And um, this, this was a real shock. Um, it was just that third dimension was something I, I'd never really thought about for myself as, as much as I appreciated the work of Moore and Hepworth. Um, you know, I'd, ne I'd never thought about three-dimensional design, um, but I started to feel a bit of a, a buzz of energy once I started unearthing that third dimension and the opportunities and the materials that came with it um so yeah i spent the, the remainder of my art college year making abstract shapes and making them from different materials from matchsticks to wire to just paper and sellotape and then i and i loved it and i went on to study furniture design at, at buckinghamshire um and that that's the old chair making capital of england historically and I was attracted to furniture, I think, because I could see it afforded a degree of artistic expression. Um, and it was quite immediate, like art, you know, you could make it with your own hands and get immediate results um, in comparison to, say, architecture, where you, ha you have much longer project cycles. Um, so, yeah, my, my first employment was with Matthew Hilton. 
And I think this was a nice step into the industry for me because he's a designer who comes at his work, I think, like a sculptor. Um, he's, he's quite impulsive and, um, you know, he's material driven. I think he's a real master of wood and upholstery. And, and I think this experience built up my confidence around the value of self-expression in design, n not just in art. And, and thinking beyond the function of an object. Um, and then I went to work for Pearson Lloyd, um, who were very different. They are industrial designers working with more advanced materials and manufacturing processes and working in very demanding contexts like aeroplane interiors and hospital furniture, as, as well as um, office and residential furniture too. Um, but their approach and their design process, in contrast to Matthew's, was very methodical and analytical and rational. And I, I remember really struggling at the time to, to adjust to that, but then also struggling to adjust back after being there for four years. Um, so, but I think it was really valuable for me to have uh, two um, first-hand experiences the design process that were very different, um, but both yielded really relevant, professional and, and brilliant results. Um, so when I set up on my own, I, I wanted to loosen up my process again and sit somewhere in the middle. And, and I think my approach it does combine this industrial design rigor, but with a more impulsive um, self-expressive way of working that I, I picked up at art college and had continued with with Matthew's studio um, yeah and, and upholstery is something I happen to be focused on in, in both firms um, and I think that's certainly defining who I am as a designer um, now Mm, yeah, that's so interesting. What an incredible set of experiences. And, and I have had no idea that Buckinghamshire was, you know, historically the capital of, of chair making in England. That's really fascinating. Yeah. It's the uh, Windsor chair was made there. Um, <laughs> but I won't sidetrack too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I would love to be sidetracked in that direction. But I, I want to talk more about seating because you've just said that, um, you know, upholstery has become a focus of yours and and seating, but particularly upholstery. Um, you've said in the past that it's one of your favourite things to design. You know, I think there's a couple of reasons there why, but I'd like to dig a little deeper and maybe find out a little bit maybe about what the process entails and, and what you might enjoy specifically about designing those pieces or those types of furniture pieces? Sure, yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's the scale of seating that feels very natural to me as a designer. I, I feel like I can really relate to objects of this kind of size. Um, and it's a type of design that interfaces most with the human body. And, and this is where my interest lies. And I think every every project needs a starting point. And I find that the body is a really solid and, and grounded one. Um, when I start out on a design, I think about how I want the shape to connect to the body, like how an armrest might offer reassurance by locking into your armpit or how your shoulder blades might roll over the top of a backrest and make you spread your arms out. And, you know, I think about 
how this body language changes your mood and I think body position and emotion are so entwined you know it's not just about physical comfort um but I, I think I also think the most beautiful forms come from where they interface with the human body I, I'm attracted to organic shapes um and and with upholstery you have very few restrictions in terms of shape um, I think almost any shape is possible, particularly if you consider advanced manufacturing, you know, injection molding, for example. Um, and then beyond the form, you can control the density, the texture and the feel. Um, you know, upholstery is this moving fluid object. And so you need to think about how it's going to yield to pressure and or, or even how it's going to yield or age over time and change shape over time. Um, so it comes with these challenges. Um, and then, you know, with Molinari, he work, um, one of my clients, he works specifically with leather. You know, leather doesn't arrive on a roll. It arrives cow-shaped. And that adds another <laughs> layer of complexity. Um, so I, f I feel like it's this endless medium to work with. And, and that the body is an endless brief too. It has different postures and different ages and it travels through a different context. So it's not this um, static thing either. So when we, we've got these two moving entities, and in that sense, I feel, you know, upholstered seating is a subject that I could easily dedicate a life's work to. Well, I hope you do, because I've never heard anyone talk about it quite like that before. It's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to dig a little deeper into the, the psychology of furniture. You, you've talked about the design process um, or designing pieces that, you know, encouraged a relaxed posture or relaxed behaviour. Um, I wonder if there's a bit of a chicken and egg thing happening here, whether, um, you know, our behaviour affects the furniture design or does the design change our behaviour? Or would you say there's a little of both happening, at least within your work, yeah. what you try um, to achieve? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, definitely both. I mean, I think people and changing behaviors pave the way and and its furniture design then starts to to follow and adapt and support that change and then in turn i think that makes people feel more secure and encouraged in these new habits and and it spirals from there um yeah i think i started being interested in informal furniture and i guess soft seating because i could see that people use chairs in unconventional ways and, and not necessarily how they're designed to be used. Mm. I'm curious to know, do you think you need to be relaxed or in a relaxed state to design furniture that allows the user to yeah, be relaxed? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, I guess you have to have a lot of respect for relaxation to, to want to have a career that supports it. And, and I definitely do. I mean, I think downtime and thinking time and time to reflect and make good decisions for yourself are important for everybody, whatever you're doing. And, but yeah, design is an emotional roller coaster, and I'd be lying if I said I felt relaxed all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but, but it's as well as realization, I think the it's joy is something I think about a lot now, because I think, um, this is, is kind of tied together with relaxation. I feel joy is what makes us feel peaceful and content. And, and it's that 
in that sense, it's joy that has the capacity to make us slow down and relax. So in my work, I feel it's not just about providing a comfortable seat, because I think the objects we live with and live around should de delight us as well, even when they're not in use. You know, we have to look at them all the time, even when we're not using them. Um, so, yeah, mm. I'd like to tie joy in with relaxation. I love the sound of that. I'm going to come back to the element of time in a moment. Um, and before I do that, I wanted to delve in a little bit more into your relationship with Molinari. You mentioned them, mentioned them earlier. Can you maybe talk about yeah, how that came about and the process of designing three particular upholstery pieces, the Rondo, Bebendum and Compagna, I'm assuming is how that is pronounced. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and maybe what each, um, or what needs each of those individual designs address? Sure. Um, so we have, well, Molinari, um, they're based in Trentino in Northern Italy, and they took part in an initiative called Trentino Collaborations, which, um, was a government, um, Italian government funded initiative to, to boost um, industry in that region. And it connected British designers with Trentino based manufacturers. Um, and so there were four designs by four different designers. There was Max Lamb and Sebastian Cox and Giles Miller um, and myself. And um, the four designs were launched together at the London Design Fair in September 2016. Um, and so I was paired with Molinari and we created the Rondo sofa. And, and so this, the, that was the beginning of our relationship. Um, Rondo was inspired by punch bags, you know, boxes, punch bags. Mm. Um, I liked the way um, boxes sometimes hug them between blows. And I think it's because it's so, you know, human scale and that cylindrical form is very nice. Um, and I set out to design a sofa that has some of those qualities and feels that way. And it invites you to wrap your arms around it. Um, but also, I think the, the leather sports equipment was a nice reference for Molinari because it, it radiates craftsmanship and durability. And I felt it would draw attention to Molinari's expertise in, in their leatherworking skills um, and also the beauty of the raw material um, which is the leather hides that, that Molinari produce themselves mm. um, so yeah Rondo was um, yeah immediately picked up at the fair by the Conran shop in London and Spence and Lyder in Sydney um, mm. I think I think they almost made the order on the spot, which is unheard of. And I think in Spence and Lido were so eager to get the sofa onto their showroom floor that I think Molinari actually sent them the exhibition prototype direct from the fair. Um, oh wow! It was sold that. and, and, and the, it yeah it's sold consistently um, since two thousand sixteen. Um, so I think the success of this product really sealed Mina Molinari's relationship. And, and now we've got like, five product ranges together and I'm the, the, the primary external designer for them at the moment. Um, mm. And so the other products that followed and launched last year, um, they follow a similar theme um, to Rondo. But what I really wanted to hone in on actually was 
the areas where the leather yielded to the external structure, so in the case of Rondo, it's this external leg, you know, where that soft wrinkled leather yielded to that hard material, I could see this sort of dialogue going on that animated the design and the material. And so I really wanted to build on this detail by introducing new external structures, new materials to Molinari's leather palette. And so Campagna has a, a gloss lacquered external box type structure and these big cushions inside that spill out over the top a bit like a, a souffle, if you, if you will. <laughs> um, and then Babendum has a, a rigid poly, polyurethane external structure, which is finished in various finishes, um, be gloss or matte or black or off-white. Um, and so, yeah, maybe go into a bit more detail on Babendum. Um, so Babendum... Um, referenced leather and fiberglass chairs from the 60s and 70s because I could see they age beautifully. When I go to the flea markets today in Paris, when you see a Joe Colombo elder chair, it always looks fantastic the way the leather just patinates and ages and over the over the pristine shell, which doesn't deteriorate at all. Um, you know, they, they always, you know, look great and so Babendo I've gone down this similar theme but, and also but also made it modular um, to give it a bit so this single seat um, that can be used individually or joined up to make a sofa of any length so I hope that adaptability will give it some extra longevity too. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that you use the word longevity. I think also the three designs are really quite timeless. I think there's something about the three of them that feels like they may have always existed in a sense. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, which I love. Um, so I wanted to maybe ask you about um, maybe some other external factors that you know may affect your work. And, and I, I'm thinking particularly of sustainability, uh, but also the changing ways in which we live, uh, you know, things like the sh shrinking home sizes, um, you know, d do these aspects come into your thought process as you're designing um, and how important are they to you? Yeah, I think um, when I design as if I'm designing for myself, just because I find that's the most effective and efficient way to think and work. Um, so I think you know, I must be designing for the changes in how we live just simply because I am designing in the present. Um, but I think the process is maybe more subconscious, you know, in, in that sense. But um, in my work, I've always tried to keep footprints to a minimum, giving, I think, because I've always lived in a city in a relatively small flat. Um, so, yeah, keeping the footprints to a minimum, but giving the furniture a feel, an expansive feel when you're sitting in it, trying to keep it feeling generous. Um, you know, you can be surprised how comfortable a chair can be, you know, if it's very small, but it, but it can still feel, feel very comfortable if it's done right. Um, but yeah, I think since, since the lockdown, I was started thinking more about portability of chairs. Mm. Um, we happen to have two little tub chairs on wheels um, 
during the lockdown and, and they were great for moving around the flat to follow the sun to read move to the window or, or move back in front of the tv on an evening and being able to reconfigure the seating in a room suddenly became more important when you were spending so much time in that room um, so Compagno actually um, had this mobility in mind um, I started this design with the wheels and, and I wanted it to be mobile and, and I wanted those wheels to be an integral part of the design, not, not just an add-on. Um, so the wheels align with the four extremities of the, the frame and are quite a prominent feature. And the, the final design, I guess it has a sort of carriage-like or go-kart-like language to it, which I hope gives it a bit of charm. Mm, absolutely. So I want to go back to time. You mentioned it earlier um, from what I have read about you and your process and how you work. It seems that time and also solitude uh, are quite important to your process. Could you talk a little bit about that for us? Yeah, sure. It's true. I mean, the, the studio I had in, in London for the last eight years, what well, was my first studio, um, was in a really remote part of East London. Um, overlooking the, the River Thames. It had a great kind of open view and a big sky. And it was in the historic Docklands area, which is now a nature reserve. And it's underneath the city airport flight path. So, you know, it was isolated. But, and that, but I often attribute that isolation to helping me find my own voice in this industry. But I think to answer your question, I think it also helped me find my own pace I think being there, I didn't feel the pressure to keep up with my peers or to grow into a bigger company um, or, you know, produce lots and lots of work. You know, I, I don't have employees um, or feel a great pressure to increase my productivity. You know, I just love doing the work with my own hands. And that's what's really important to me. That, um, And I like to make one to five models this is part of the process that that slows me right down it uh, kind of forces you to slow down um and then these models are also quite charming and, and alive and i can put them around my studio and live around them and spend a long time looking at them kind of giving them the consideration they need um to really see whether they have that longevity or you know, whether that their appeal is long lasting. And, you know, I tend to, I try and keep these models around me for as long as I can before I show them to a client so I can be sure that they have a, a lasting appeal. So yeah, taking, taking things slowly is, is a big part of what I do and, and value. That sounds so incredibly luxurious, but maybe it, it shouldn't be. <laughs> maybe it should just be normal. <laughs> no, I'm incredibly jealous. <laughs> uh, well, I want to ask you about instinct and listening to your gut, however you may um, kind of define that. How important would you say that is uh, as part of your process? Yeah, I think I think um, I think good designers are using their instinct and their gut all the time. Um, I think this is what makes one designer stand out from another and what leads to memorable or, or iconic objects. You know, I, I don't think you can achieve that level of work if, you know, the design process is, is completely rationalized and, and calculated. You know, you could, you could teach anyone to 
work in a, in a robotic way like that. Um, you know, Dieter Rams, as we all know, is a designer known for his purest designs. And, you know, he wrote what he calls the, the 10 principles of good design. And just to give an example, I think one of them went something like, you know, good design is as little design as possible. And, and the general text contains narratives like, um, you know, d design is not decorative or they're not works of art and design should be neutral and restrained. And and I I kind of understand all this and, and agree and agree to an extent, but um, I don't think it's quite as simple as that because when I look at Ram's work, I see that it is recognisable and, and it does have a signature. And I think that's his personal touch that, that makes these his products special. And um, and I, he doesn't mention that in his ten principles of good design. And and I think many as lots of designers or we we all avoid talking about instinct and, and gut as part of the design process just because it is so hard to talk about because it's it's not a tangible or or measurable thing it's quite it's ethereal but um i don't think that makes it any less important um yeah i think we should try and find ways to talk about it more mm. um yeah that's really interesting yeah. Uh, so I guess, yeah, talking about process, you know, the last two years uh, or longer now, perhaps, um, have obviously changed a lot of things in terms of how designers are working without physically being able to visit factories or workshops. Um, and, I, yeah. you know, I wonder how different that is for you, because I think a lot of designers rely on those maker partners to produce prototypes. And you've talked about making some of those models on your own by hand uh you know how much has that changed for you over the last two years what compromises may you have had to make given the COVID yeah. situation yeah I mean it, it did pose its challenges I think you know not being able to travel to visit prototypes and develop products with the factory was was limiting um you know, upholstery, as I say, is this moving, flexible, fluid thing. So even the most, you know, perfect one to five model or meticulous technical drawing, it still leaves a lot to interpretation. And it's not enough on its own to fully translate your vision. Um, you know, over the years, I've learned to wave my hands and make big motions and, and gestures to help communicate and describe what I want in terms of the, the movement or, you know, particular details, but also to help take up space in the room and make sure my voice is being heard and understood. And, you know, this is something you can't do so well on, on Zoom. Um, and, and then for me, it's, it's because of, you know, upholstery and seating, I, I need to get my hands on it and I need to feel the design with my body and nestle into it and, you know, I always take my shoes off when I'm trying out a prototype in the factory and put my feet up and sprawl sprawl myself over it. Um, so, yeah, not being able to travel um, was to visit the prototypes was hard. And we muddled through on Skype or whatever, but ultimately the distance, it did lead to more convoluted and elongated development periods. And I think that added cost and strain to both the designer and the manufacturer. 
um, yeah, l- launching a product at a fair that you haven't seen before or signed off is really quite stressful. So um, I hope we can we will start uh, yeah doing more regular factory visits again. Mm, um, absolutely. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you next about you know mentors and and potential advisors that you may have had uh, over the years. You talked about your early work experiences and what they've kind of brought to you and your philosophies. Um, but mm. maybe more particularly about the the synergistic relationships that you may have with retail partners. You mentioned Spence and Lider earlier, and um, you know getting mm. that that first prototype onto a retail kind of floor. I, I wonder whether that sort of feedback direct from consumers via those partners, you know, how valuable do you find that? Is it something that you're actively engaged in? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I wish I had relationship with all the retailers that carry my products, you know, I've, I have, would have so many questions, but I'm grateful for the relationships and conversations I do have um, with the major retailers that carry my work. So the Conrad Shop and Spence and Lider are the, are the two that I communicate with. Um, you know, having an object at home versus going shopping and looking to purchase an object for your home in, in a retail environment are two very different things. And, and that's where a retailer can really help us designers out. Um, you know, I met Fiona um, from Spence and Lyder in, in London when she came uh, a few years ago um, and she gave me some great advice after I designed Otto, my second product for Molinari. Uh, and it was her direct and constructive criticism that, that pushed me forward and, and got me into, you know, working with new materials and forms. Um, yeah, we, we went for a, a coffee and... Um, it was the first time we'd met, but she'd been selling Rondo well and was about to take the plunge on Otto too, um, but had some reservations. Um, you know, after I'd designed Rondo, um, you know, designing the next product was quite tricky for me because I guess it's a bit like a, a museum with a, a, a musician with a, a first hit album mm. it's like what do you do next you know what do your audience expect from you and mm. I was still relatively unknown and so I decided to play it safe and build on Rondo with a design that is similar in aesthetic but offers a different functionality so Otto was was more modular and uh, it had a deeper more relaxed seat it's probably a bit more streamlined as well f- shape-wise um, so in many ways, it's, it's a different product, but at first glance, it's quite similar. And Fiona helped me to understand that this was a bit problematic for retailers because, you know, on the shop floor, the space is so valuable. Every product needs to stand out and be different and, you know, be a feast for the eyes for a customer walking into the room and scanning the room. Um so yeah a retailer can't really afford to have two similar looking products and this was something that hadn't really occurred to me before Mm. um so that was that was great advice and then and then also just more importantly you know every new product is such an opportunity why would you why would you waste that and and the the penny dropped and 
I think I can largely attribute my latest Molinari designs to Fiona's nudge, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure she'll (laughs) love to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's true. (laughs) Well, that's that's wonderful that you were so receptive to that feedback, though. Um, You know, I'm curious to know whether you see an alignment of values um, I guess with Fiona and Spence and Lyda in particular, and and if so, is that something that's important to you? And you know, I guess you're maybe not necessarily selecting retailers, but um, you know, to be partnering with people like that that sell your designs, is that something that you yeah. place value in? Yeah, um, yeah. I, th- I mean, it's nice when yeah, when a retailer picks up your work. I mean, you kind of immediately feel a connection I guess because you know not all retailers pick up your work so it's the ones that really yeah, appreciate and, and understand what you do that that, that do um, take on your work and yeah Spence and Lyda they they talk about you know adding meaning to the living experience and they, they talk about visual form as well as functionality and pieces designed to stay in our lives for generations. And it's all the things that I believe in too. You know, I I want to design objects that will get passed on or handed down. And I want to design objects that are memorable and and stand out. And and I agree with Spencer and Ida, it takes form and not just functionality to to do that. Well, I don't know if you saw the display of some of your pieces at Villa Alba, their installation during Melbourne Design Week. Uh, yeah, I see it. They looked spectacular. Beautiful, isn't it? What a show. Yeah. yeah. Yes, they did a great job. Yeah. Um, so my last question, although I feel like I could talk about sofas and chairs with you for hours on end. <laughs> it's so fascinating. Uh, I know that you've just recently relocated from London to Paris, and I wanted to ask you a bit about that change in scenery obviously very different cultures what do you think that has or what do you hope that it will bring to your practice yeah as well yeah so I mean moving my studio to Paris it was a big decision but you know I was already living here quite a bit but you know living between the two cities so I still go to London quite a lot to meet with clients but also I teach at Kingston University which is something I really value. Um, the students there are really bright and they keep me challenged and articulated, which is um, quite important when you're mostly working alone like I am. Um, but so it's but I think it's the extra perspective that I get from moving to a different country that's been a great you know motivation to me. Um, I feel design is very respected here in Paris. But in, in a different way to how it's celebrated in the UK, I think the decorative arts are cherished here and are just part of everyday life. You know, Paris is so ornate. Um, and this plays out in the furniture here as well, in the antique shops and the flea markets and in, in people's homes. You know, Art Deco is a, is a huge influence here, whereas in more, you know, UK, it's more Scandinavian design that's probably more influential um but yeah i mean during lockdown when all the galleries and public spaces were shut and you know you could only go out for a walk for one hour a day um i turned my eye into this street you know for for want of visual and three-dimensional stimulation um and i became fixated on um, 
all the different doorknobs <laughs> displayed <laughs> on the streets and you know all different materials different finishes processes colors um, and I started photographing them and each one was like a a little a miniature sculpture giving life and identity to each building and and that spoke to my respect for self-expression again and uh, and I think you know you know going around it a long way but I think being in Paris I do feel more free to express myself here um yeah and I enjoy the the culture of living well you know enjoying life and all its simple pleasures you know from pastries to you know, ironmongery <laughs> on the streets um that's a great you know, combination yeah <laughs> um yeah enjoyed and embellished and you know there's a kind of, yeah culture of just living well which is which is nice um mm. yeah i'm excited to bring my work here and and see where see where that takes me that sounds terribly exciting. Pastries and ironmongery. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm all for that. <laughs> uh, Lucy, thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you. And, uh, you know, we're obviously eagerly awaiting uh, to see what you do next.